0: So last week, uh, if you were with us at all, um, you know that I took a slightly different approach to uh, the message and the sermon. If you weren't with us last week, you have no idea what I did, uh, which is fine. Um, Took a slightly different approach to the message in uh, the sermon in in what I typically refer to as kind of storying. Uh, I try to story the scriptures. Essentially what we did is just kind of covered a whole lot of the different stories that you find in Genesis. And, and it's not so much that I stand up here and I just read it, and, and I'm not just quoting Scripture or anything like that, but I try to tell it in somewhat of a creative way that brings us into the story and, and, and connect with it in a more intentional way, but, but it's still faithful to the text. And the reason that I do that is because um, every once in a while, I feel like we just need to be reminded of the sufficiency of God's Word, right? That the story is enough Uh, A lot of times I feel that we can be somewhat casual in our approach to the Bible or our approach to scriptures, and and we miss the beauty and the grandeur and the majesty of what it really entails, right? We, We need to be reminded of the centrality and the significance that it should play in our lives. It's the word of God. Can I say that again? Listen, the word of God. That's what we come and we submit to each and every week. It, it, there is nothing like this, nothing. There is, there is no document in, in ancient history or modern day that rivals or even comes close to comparing to it. To, to think of having this collection of 66 different writings that have spanned thousands of years by numerous different authors that all point to the same God, this incredible story of redemption is nothing short of remarkable, and you and I should be enthralled with the word of God. So are you? That, that's the question. That's, that is our intent when we gather here to come with reverence, to come with joy, mindful of the victory of Christ, and to be reminded once again of the beauty and the power and the sufficiency of God's word. But that needs to extend beyond just Sunday morning and into each and every area and arena of our lives. And so is that true for you? Right are you enthralled with the scriptures? Taken up by this story each and every day are you talking about it with your loved ones, with your children, with your parents, with your neighbors? Is it guiding your life? That's what we're here for. To submit to the sacred holy word. And so let us pray that it stirs our hearts accordingly this morning and in this moment. Would you bow your heads? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, what a humble privilege to be entrusted with your word. And God, we give you praise. We're we're grateful that you even entrust it to us to begin with. God, that you're a God who speaks. So Father, let us listen and hear and respond and marvel and submit to this living and active and holy word in this moment. God, send your spirit to change us and mold us and help us to follow you more fully, more wholeheartedly in every arena of our lives. We thank you for this time. May it bring you the glory that you so richly deserve. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. Well, did everyone enjoy the snow yesterday? No? it's great. Only in Texas can you go from 70 to a tornado to snow, right? It was pretty incredible. And so we, uh, we woke up with my kids going crazy with the fact that there was snow outside. We all got dressed, bundled up, ran outside, played in the snow, uh, built a snowman. Uh, it's really tiny but we built one, it's great, made an attempt. And it was so fun to watch my kids play. We invited the neighbors and just people kinda gathered in the streets and everybody's just running around. And and part of what I loved watching my children go through that is just the innocence of this season of life that they're in, this stage of childhood where where play is just fun and imaginative and innocent, and, and I just really, really love that season of childhood. And, and it kind of got me reflecting on all the different ways that you see it unfold, especially with my children right now in the age ranges that I have. Because James being the oldest is nine and then Annabelle is seven, but Woo, who we just adopted, is three. And so a lot of what we're seeing with him is kind of reliving the childhood that we saw with James and Annabelle just a couple years ago and, and kind of introducing him to a lot of those same things. And he's kind of reached that age as he's coming up upon three where he's starting to get more interested in the superhero We've got one of those little uh, golden rule books, or whatever they're called, and, and it's like Batman and his friends, or Superman and his friends, and he likes to read that. I've read that to him a couple of times, and so I thought this weekend it'd be good to introduce him to the whole dress up as a superhero idea, and so I, I gave him one of the uh, superhero costumes that we have in our house. I'll show, I brought a picture for you today. Here's Wu, <clears throat> dressed up as the Green Lantern, right? Has no idea who the Green Lantern is, as I don't even know that I do, really, but Looks pretty cute, and so I, I was enjoying this moment, and of course, it took me back down memory lane where I kept thinking about how James and Annabelle dress, used to dress this way, so I got on my phone, I was like, I wanna go find a picture when they were dressed, and I kept scrolling and scrolling and scrolling and scrolling and scrolling and scrolling, i so I got, what, 40,000 pictures that I don't know what I'm ever gonna do with. Finally found one that I also brought with me of them when they were about this age. Here they are, uh, with not just a face of intensity, But what I want you to notice from this picture is that almost every superhero costume that we had in our home is actually being worn in this photo, okay? Annabelle is representing Spider-Woman, okay, and pretty intensely, I would say. Now, if you look closely, though, James has the green around his collar there. That's uh, the Incredible Hulk. And then he covered that up with Batman and Captain America all at once, forming some sort of massive, truly superhero person in that moment, okay? And so that was, that was a full representation, in addition to the Green Lantern, of all these different superhero costumes we have. Now, here's the thing. I was looking at this picture, and I realized there's a very notable superhero that is missing from my kid's childhood experience. Which one is it? Superman, right? Right? There it is. And, and I know this is missing because uh, this is who I was when I was growing up, Right? Uh, I'm not speaking based on fact. I'm speaking based on my own personal childhood experience here that this is the greatest superhero to pretend to be. Now, you'll also notice from this photo, superhero costumes have come a long way, right? I don't know if you can see the abs and the muscles quite as clearly in this photo. But here's the thing about uh, pretending to be a superhero when you're this age. I think more than it is about being the hero, while it is cool to be able to go rescue people and things like that. What we really emphasize as children is the super part, correct? It's the, it's the powers. It's this ability to do all these incredible things, x-ray vision, shooting lasers with your eyes, superhuman strength, superhuman speed, and of course, the best superpower of all, which is flying, right? I mean, it's so great. In fact, I see some people skeptical of that statement. In fact, that's one of my favorite would you rather questions, and so let me just briefly entertain that game for a second, I'm curious. Here's my question I love to ask people. Would you rather be able to fly or be invisible? Okay, so quick poll, show of hands, how many of you would rather be able to fly? Let me see, okay. How many of you would rather be invisible? Keep your hands up, everybody look around. Pray for these people, okay? (laughs) These are the devious ones. I don't know what it is that you wanna be invisible for. I'm just saying. Flying is by all, well, actually, I'm gonna go with teleportation at this point in my life. If I could teleport, it'd, it'd be a game changer. But anyway, point being, it's this, this idea of being enthralled with these super powers, right? That's what makes you play. Now, here's the thing. As we get older, what we discover when we reflect on things like this is that this kind of childhood desire reveals something innate about the human experience, doesn't it? That there's this thirst for power. Now, as we get older, what we realize is that that power being manifest in that sort of way as some sort of superhero with superhuman capabilities is not realistic. And so those fantasies we set aside, but the thirst for power remains. And we look for it in other areas. We look for it in other ways. Could it be status? Could it be wealth? Could it be fame, influence, whatever it is? But but we long for and desire power. And that's what this series is really designed to address, All right? We, we started this series last week with that storying through Genesis, but we're going to be looking into the story of Moses to really get a greater understanding of God's power. And that's important for us, not just because of what we see in the scripture, but that's kind of unique to who we are as a church. This is kind of the heart of our prayer. What, what is it that we consistently remind each other to be praying for, right? That God's power would be unleashed in our lives, in our church, in our community, in the world so that every tongue, tribe, and nation can come to know and proclaim the saving work of Jesus Christ. That's our prayer. But it begins with praying for the power of God to be unleashed. What do we mean by that? What does that look like? Do we have a clear understanding of God's power. That's what this series is designed for us to truly be enamored with and to be reminded of is God's incredible power. And part of what I hope we see through the course of this series, and in particular today, is this reminder that God's power cannot and will not be stopped. That the Jesus we serve is King of kings and Lord of lords. And that is an incredible power that demands the fullness of our loyalty and our devotion. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Exodus chapter 1 as we begin this discussion on power today. Now let me offer a little bit of context as we get ready to read this opening story in the book of Exodus. Part of the reason that I wanted this story through the patriarchs last week was so that this didn't just come up out of nowhere. right? It's not as if we're just reading the next character or the next plot line. It all ties together. Right? Part of what we're seeing come to fruition with the story of of Exodus is this promise that God made at the very beginning to Abram, right? When, when we see that covenant being sealed and, and God actually says, your descendants are gonna live for 400 years as foreigners in a land that is not their own. They're gonna be enslaved and mistreated, but I'm gonna punish the nation that enslaves them and bring them out with greater possessions. That, that is the covenant that is mentioned in Genesis 15 to Abram, and now we're getting to see it come into fruition. We're seeing the faithfulness, the fullness of God's plan and God's power. And so this is, this is a continuation of the stories of the patriarchs. This is how God is bringing these things to be. Now, the other thing I want us to see with Exodus as we prepare to read this story today is that it is, it is so critical to being a foundational part of our theology, right? If you think about what we see in the Exodus, we see God revealing his character, his name, uh, we, we see instructions on how to live, we see how to worship, and ultimately we see that God is a God of rescue, God is a God of redemption. And so the more we understand Exodus, the better we understand all of God's plan of redemption, the more we understand the fullness of what Jesus accomplished and how he redeems ultimately. So this is an incredibly important book. Now, I don't know how far we're really going to be able to get into it this year, but But I feel like even if we just look at the beginning pages of it, while it doesn't give us a full chance to see all that the Exodus provides for us in this work, we at least get a glimpse of how God begins to reveal his all-consuming power. So we're going to read a pretty significant chunk today. So engage mentally here um, as we read chapter 1 in the first 10 verses of chapter 2 that covers this birth of Moses, starting in verse 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all, and Joseph was already in Egypt. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly increased in numbers and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in and brick and mortar, and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Sifra and Pua, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him but if it's a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. So then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? And the midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile, His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him, and when the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. I love this story for so many reasons, but we're going to approach it with a focus on this theme of power, and the first place that I want us to really look is the uh, blossoming development of god's power in a way that maybe isn't too suspecting or too typical that we would maybe imagine and the way that we see this comes through the multiplication and the fruitfulness of the israelites all right here we have in the opening lines this description of all of joseph's descendants being moved to egypt and and we saw that that's how genesis ended and so now they've all moved and yet now that generation has passed and a new king has come along and he looks upon them and he sees that the israelites are numerous. right? In fact, the way that it's described early in these uh, first few paragraphs is that they were exceedingly fruitful and multiplied greatly. In fact, the way it's written, we have there is me'od. Right? That's the word for exceedingly and greatly. In fact, the way it's written in the Hebrew, those two words are mentioned at the same time, almost back to back to where you could almost read it as it was exceedingly, exceedingly fruitful, or it was greatly, greatly multiplied. So what we see here is this really interesting word that is bringing about this emphasis. And the word meod, while it is exceedingly, it does mean very or great, it also has a root that means power. And so there are several implications with that. The first is that this shows us just the sheer magnitude of Israelites that are beginning to take hold in the land, right? That, That there is a power in their numbers. There's that many of them that because of their fruitfulness, they now carry a certain power just as a people. But I also want us to see that this is really not just power in numbers, this is the power of God, right? This is the fulfillment of his covenant. This is him holding true to what he said to the patriarchs, that their descendants were to become numerous as the stars in the sky. What we see is God being faithful to his word. His power is being worked out through the fruitfulness of the Israelites. So it's, it's almost cryptic. It's maybe not exactly how we would imagine the power of God unfolding, but it is the power of God nonetheless, and it is now getting ready to collide, be committed through most And that's really kind of where our focus is going to be committed through most of this message today, is, is how do we really begin to warn ourselves and caution ourselves against the pitfalls of the power of mankind? And we see numerous lessons in this story because the power of mankind is going to be resembled here and, and revealed here through the person of Pharaoh, right, the king of Egypt. Now, he is going to be the representation or the representation of the power of mankind, okay? Think, think about the title just itself, the role of being Pharaoh in Egypt. If you go back and you study Egyptian history, as I know you all love to do, all right, uh, you'll see that Pharaoh was, was center to Egyptian society. Everything revolved around the king of Egypt, whether it was law, economy, rules, religion, all of it revolved around that position of Pharaoh. Now, a lot of the early beliefs were that the first king of Egypt, the first Pharaoh, was in fact the creator God. That, that's kind of the belief that they carried. And so all the subsequent Pharaohs were demigods, Right? They, they represented the divine, and so, so essentially that position was also representative, or representative of, of the divine power, of a godly power, and so you have all sorts of status represented in that position, and it's not just that it's Pharaoh, and it's just that it's a king. It's king of Egypt, okay? I mean, this, this is the most significant, most influential, powerful ancient civilization. Okay, it's not some small town somewhere else. It's not King of Abilene, right? King of Merkel, okay? It's King of Egypt. I mean, th- this is the most climatic expression of the power of mankind that can exist. And what we see now is that the power of God that's being revealed through the exceeding fruitfulness of the Israelites, is on a collision course with Pharaoh, the power of man. And so what happens? The power of mankind, Pharaoh's power, feels threatened. Right? He he acknowledges it. He says, look, they become so numerous. What will happen if war breaks out and they join our enemies and fight against us and leave our country? He feels threatened by this other power. And it's interesting that his fear is driven by this fact that they could fight against him. It's interesting that that Pharaoh doesn't look at this and think, you know, maybe what we should do is treat them well, treat them kindly, give them grace, give them rights, give them some sense of security because then maybe they'd be loyal to us against our enemies. But to do that would mean what? Surrendering part of his power. And he wasn't gonna do that. That's one of the first things we see and a lesson about power is that power does not want to be threatened. And when it is, it will do everything it can to hoard and maintain the power that it has. And if it loses it, it'll do everything it can to get it back, right? That, that's something that we see no matter where you are in life, what season of life, what era of history, power loves to protect power, right? It doesn't matter what measure of power you have today. You, you may not be the king of Egypt. In fact, you're not, okay? If you are, I'd love for you to come to get to know UBC right after the service. Love to visit with you, right? You're not, right? But if you're not the CEO, you're not the teacher, you're not the coach, you're not... It doesn't matter what measure of power you have. Whatever level of power you have in your life, you do everything you can to protect it. In that moment, you lose it. You tend to resist it. You guard against those threats that could maybe take it away, and should you lose it, you'll do everything you can to get it back. Why is that? Why do we live that way? I think it takes us back to the garden, because what is the gift that God gives his people? Power. Right? He says, be fruitful and multiply. Have dominion. Rule over this creation. He creates us so that he can give us power. This is a good manifestation of power. This is what Andy Crouch uh, would refer to as flourishing power. Right? That's the gift that was given. And so, of course, Satan, the serpent, wants to corrupt it, right? wants to, to change it. And so that's the deception that leads us into the fall, right? That's what what causes all those problems in the beginning. It's not just a thirst for knowledge of good and evil. It's not just, oh, I won't die. It's that whisper, that temptation. You eat this fruit and you will be like God. You'll have ultimate power. This is how Satan tempts Jesus, right? That third and final temptation. He takes Jesus up unto a high place and shows him all the kingdoms, all the villages, and he says, all of it can be yours. You can have power. And so part of what we have to recognize is that there's this innate desire for it because it was God's gift. We were created to steward it well, but at the same time, it's the heart of sin. It's that that impulse, that desire to take that power, not for flourishing, but for selfish reasons, to to allow it to only be used for for our own benefit, for our own causes, for our own desires, right? And to hoard it and to keep it for ourselves. And so that's why we resist it ever being threatened. And so this is what we see playing out. Pharaoh feels threatened, he's afraid. And so how does he respond? He responds with oppression right in fact look at some of the words that are included in this description slave masters are placed over them <clears throat> to oppress means to be afflicted to be in a state of anxiety and distress to punish and to inflict pain upon someone that's how he's responding to these threats that are coming to what he foresees to take his power forced labor The forced labor here is not even just that it's the work that is forced, right? It's not just that it's mandated, but the work itself was punitive, right? It was harsh. It was difficult. So Pharaoh responds with some pretty significant oppression. And so you see this kind of played out here in this text. And right in the middle of that initial response, what do we get? We get a word. The more that they were oppressed, the more they increased. (laughs) I love that. Right, it's this, it's this hint, what is gonna be the theme for all of Exodus, no matter what you try to do, God's power cannot be stopped, right? And so, so Pharaoh realizes that their initial attempts are unsuccessful, <clears throat> right, that it's not working, that, the, that God's power, even though he doesn't see it as such, is on the move, the Israelites continue to grow in number, so now his response is only going to intensify, right? He's going to increase this pain and this difficulty. Look at the, large, the words that come about after that, that they're going to deal harshly with them, ruthlessly with them, make their lives bitter, and it repeats over and over again just how severe this becomes. This is talking about cruelty. This is talking about brutality. This is talking about violence. And so what we see, though, in the midst of that is another important development about the problems with power, is that as Uh, uh, pharaoh begins to intensify his response against the israelites what does it say it says the egyptians came to dread the israelites so now the fear has spread not just to pharaoh but to all of egypt all these other egyptians and now they dread the israelites you know what the word dread means to have disgust hatred this is what power does power leads you to a place of hate because power wants to have an enemy Because as soon as power can have an enemy, it can justify its means to behave however it wants. It can justify whatever means need to be taken to preserve its own power. And so now you have an entire people that are looked upon with disgust and hatred. What happens is it's the breakdown of the neighbor. Right, this call to love the neighbor all of a sudden becomes replaced with this call to hate the enemy. That's what power does. And so now Pharaoh has a justification for a more intensified oppression. What does he lead this to? He tells the midwives first, kill every Hebrew boy. And we'll get to their response, the midwives response here in just a little bit. But it starts with them. Again, it's unsuccessful. Again, their numbers continue to increase. And so the end of chapter one is no longer just instructions to midwives, but a decree to all the Egyptians, anyone, that sees a Hebrew boy throw him in the river. Let the girls live, kill the Hebrew boys. What we have at this moment is the most corruptible expression of power there is. A power that has now assumed the right to determine the difference between life and death. And not in the context of judge and jury or trial or crime but based on race, based on gender, based on culture denying people the right to humanity. What we have being revealed in this moment is planned massacre, it's genocide. Now, sadly, it's not hard for us to relate to this story. Sadly, we don't have to look too far back on our own nation's history and our own pursuit of power to see the exact same thing. Right, where all of a sudden the threat of power or the thirst for power consumes in such a, an amazing way that it justifies looking at other races, other genders, other cultures to the point of planned massacre and genocide. This is, this is not hard to conceive. This is not just an ancient story. This is what happens when power is left and the hands of mankind. It, reads us, or it brings us into that quote that Lord Acton offered in the 1800s, that power tends to corrupt, but absolute power corrupts absolutely. And so part of why I'm bringing this to our attention is for all of us to be aware of the fact that we have this innate thirst for power. And since all of us carry that, guess what? All of us are susceptible to being corrupted by that power every single one of us, none of us is above being corrupted. And not only that, we're not immune to following corrupted power, right? And so we have to be mindful of those temptations and those impulses that we may carry and how that influences how we live and function in this society today. And so how do we withstand? How do we guard against these impulses to see this power that can so easily corrupt us and so many others? What do we do? Well, that's where we see some incredible lessons embedded in this text as well. Let's start with the midwives. Okay, I love, love the story of the midwives. All right here they are. So, so now the persecution, the oppression against the Israelites is intensifying. And so Pharaoh's first, uh, uh, I guess, attempt to, uh, enact that intensification is to bring the midwives in and then give them the instructions to kill any Hebrew boy that is born. Now think about this picture for a moment. Right, here are these midwives standing before Pharaoh. Right, Pharaoh has all the power. Absolutely. like he, he could do anything he wants to them. He, he could deny them any right, any freedom, take their lives. He could do anything to them. So if there was ever a reason to be fearful of the power of man, the midwives had it, right? They they stood helpless knowing that if they didn't follow through, they could lose any measure of power that they personally had in that moment. So they had a choice. What were they going to fear? The fear of man or the fear of God? And for them, the answer was easy. We fear God. I love that. I love the lesson that that teaches you and me, right, that so many times in our lives when we find ourselves thirsting for this power or following a corruptible power, we too are given a choice. How are you going to make decisions in your life, be it at work, at home, in the community, in this culture? Are you going to make those decisions based on the fear of man and the loss of your own power or the fear of God? So how have you made those choices? What does that look like in your life? And I'm sure there are a lot of specific examples of how we could break those down into our own personal relationships, but I was, I was thinking about some of the just recent events that we see brought to us that are, that are often causing some form of a reaction in our culture, in our society. Just for example, let me give you a, a couple examples. I, I was leaving work on Thursday, driving on University Boulevard and I saw a protest Bunch of people standing out on the sidewalks holding signs, uh, chanting about uh, the situation in Iran and, and the concerns about war. Now, I'm not bringing this up to bring in any commentary on protest or in that particular situation, other than to say that's a recent event that has captured our attention for many people. Think, think about some of the conversations that I've had recently amongst the staff and with several of you here in this church. Because... What, just a couple of weeks ago, December 29th, there was another church shooting, and that creates concern, right? And so we've been talking as a staff, all right, are we prepared? What steps do we need to take, and, and how do we get uh, all the different safety precautions in place? And we, we talk about those things, because sadly, we live in a world where those things happen. Uh, let's think about the fact that it's uh, an election year, politics, Right? And we're going about to be swept away in all these conversations of parties and policies and candidates and, and all these different things. right? And so when you engage in those sorts of conversations, how do you make those decisions? Is it based on the fear of man? Or is it based on the fear of God? Right? Think, think about how you begin to react to those things. Is it based upon your desire for power, your thirst for more power, or trusting in the power of God? Right, because here's the reality. right? We like to talk about it in different ways. We like to use words like principles and ideologies and platforms, but what we're really talking about is power and our desire to maintain it. Right, you worry about a foreign power. You worry about what they can do and all those different things that may happen in our world and all those different crises that emerge. Let me ask you something. Any scenario that you can think of that happens in foreign policy, can any of it overcome the power of God? No. As tragic as it is to know that we live in a society where there are shootings and what that might mean, and no matter what kind of violence can take place in these public forums at schools or in sanctuaries or wherever it may be, does anything that transpires there overcome the power of God? No. You worry about What, Supreme Court nominations? Legislation? Rights, causes, all those things that that we get swept away in. Are any of those things greater than the power of God? No. Not at all. And yet we get so caught up into it. Here's the litmus test for us to know if we're fearing the power of man over the power of God. How are you treating other people? How do you view other people? Have they... Ceased being the neighbor that you've been called to love and now become the enemy that you love to hate. That's probably a good litmus test. Right? Because the reality is, no matter what threat we may have from a foreign power, guess what? There's still people. They're still our neighbors that we're called to love. No matter what may happen that can cause some sort of violence within our own midst. Those people that are suffering from their own anger, from their own mistakes, from their own mental health, whatever it is, they're still people we're called to love. The politicians that we love to get in arguments with and these, these debates that we love to have that all of a sudden lead us to detest another culture, another people, another view, that's what? there's are still a neighbor we're called to love. And so what we're really called to do is to submit to the power of God, not to the fear of man. And that's exactly the example that the midwives gave us. Now, here's the thing, right? When we do this, what happens? What happens is we begin to live into the identity that we were created for, that, that we begin people who can steward power in an effective way as God designed, flourishing power, that ultimately what we need to realize is that we should be the most fearless people on the planet, Because we don't need to fear the power of man because we know we belong to the power of God. That's what needs to happen. And all of a sudden, we're able to navigate these situations and these difficulties with love and a peace that transcends understanding. We see people as a neighbor and not as a threat. That's the difference, right? And so, so we see this incredible lesson from the midwives, but the question has to be, okay, that sounds good. How in the world do you do it? Right? Because I'm sure some of you are sitting there much like I would and go, that's great. Are you saying then that I just quit caring? That, that I just all of a sudden throw my hands up and resign myself to whatever foreign policy wants to be or to whatever happens in our own midst? Or do I just stop doing anything about that? No, right? I'm not calling us towards apathy and indifference. In fact, what, what we have to do is first establish that we fear God over the power of man, but then what do we do? We choose wisdom. And that's what we see from the Levite woman as she's named in chapter two. I love this. Okay, so here's, here's this Levite woman who is in the midst of being threatened by this genocide. Right? And what does she, does she just resign herself to the fact? Well, there's nothing I can do. Right? There's nothing that, that is possible here. No, what does she do? She fights for life. She fights for her child and she does so with wisdom. She hides him for three months. You ever tried to hide a newborn? That is not easy hides him for three that took wisdom and when the time came where she was no longer able to do what she do she built him a, a, a basket covered it with tar and pitch and she didn't just place it randomly she put it among the reeds where she knew it would be found there was wisdom in what she did part of what we see with this levite woman with moses's mother is this beautiful mixture of what god asked us to do to use our resources to choose wisdom to take it as far as we possibly can and then trust him that's the way that we we enact so when we think about foreign policies or or threats in our own community or politics man we read we're we're informed we engage we do what we can we take it as far as we possibly can but we never lose sight of the fact that ultimately we trust in his power above our own and above anyone else's and that's what allows us to maintain this posture of peace That's what allows us to maintain this mentality that trust him above all else. We have to act wisely. My fear is that unfortunately, too many times when we have sought to engage, we have engaged foolishly rather than in wisdom. So part of what we need to pray for is, Lord, show me what I can do, show me the paths to take, show me how to answer this person, show me what is the right course, and we do as much as we can, but then ultimately we surrender that trust to the Lord. And that's what the Levi woman does. There came a point where it was no longer in her control. She had to surrender power. And that's where it begins to flourish, when we let it out of our own grip and into the hands of the Almighty. And that's kind of how I want to conclude is is the way chapter two begins, which to me is just incredible, right? She does all that she can. She acts in wisdom, and then we watch God's power unfold. So think about this, right? Here's, Here's Pharaoh, the height of the power of mankind reacting against this, this threat that he sees in the Israelites, using all of this power at his disposal, using the, the height of a corruptible sense of power but this decree for genocide, right, calling that every Hebrew boy needs to be thrown in the Nile. And it's almost as if God looks down on Pharaoh and goes, okay, watch this. This little boy, this little baby that you're so afraid of, rather than him being thrown into the Nile, I'm going to have him taken out of the Nile. And not only that, I'm gonna have him saved by your own daughter, (laughs) by your own household. He's gonna be saved. And not only that, I'm gonna make sure that this child is cared and trusted to his own mother so that she can nurse him and care for him as she would. And not only that, I'm gonna have you pay with your own pocket for her to do what she was gonna do anyway. That's what I'm gonna do to you. And then I'm gonna have him raised in your household, preparing himself for the real power I'm about to unveil to you. (laughs) I love that. Anyone else? What God just did was he took the power of mankind and made a joke of it, made a mockery of it. I love this one quote that I came across that I think says it so well. It says, Pharaoh, the quasi-comic, semi-divine, if not fully divine, arch enemy of Yahweh and Yahweh's people is thus, in final analysis, little more than a puppet on Yahweh's strings, judged, controlled, and defeated, right? The fullness of the power of man is God gives, made a mockery of in comparison to the power of God. And God gives his power a name he gives this little boy, this symbol of hope, the name Moses, one who is drawn out of the water as a precursor, as a foreshadowing of the power that God was just about to truly unfold, a drawing out of his people. Love what God does here to reveal his power. So there are numerous lessons that maybe we could grab a hold of today, right? Maybe the lesson is a reminder that, that we have that tendency to thirst for power and that power corrupts and maybe you need to pray through that to guard against that to be aware of that desire that you have maybe the lesson for you today is the fact that a lot of times when we find ourselves victim to that sort of impulse and victim to that sort of power what we really need to do is choose to fear God over fearing man maybe that's what you're called to do Right, to once again submit to surrendering to God and recognizing where in your life you have fallen victim to fearing people rather than him. Or maybe the lesson for you today is, is to choose wisdom, to seek wisdom over foolish impulses and foolish desires that can so easily lead you astray. Or maybe it's just a comforting reminder that, that God's power cannot and will not be stopped. And here's the lesson about this open I want to leave you with, though. The most sobering thing about this opening story for me was the fact that God's power, as incredible as it is, as we sit back and reflect upon it and read it, in the midst of the moment, was undetectable. Think about that. Here are these Hebrews, in the midst of all that oppression, in the midst of all that hardship, all that fear, all that anxiety, all that brutality, he had no idea any of this was going on no clue so if you were to ask them in the moment what would they say life was chaotic life was harsh life was unfair god felt distant felt like he had forgotten them that's what they felt we have the benefit though to look back and to read and to see it every step of the way. God was there. He was moving intentionally, allowing his power to unfold at just the right pace, in just the right way, at just the right time. God's power was not going to be stopped. And so maybe that connects with each of us, that we're going to go through seasons of life where it feels chaotic overwhelmed by grief, overwhelmed by despair where life doesn't seem to make sense. It may be in your own house. It may be in the world around you. You see suffering. You see oppression. You begin to wonder, is God even there? How does any of this make sense? You begin to question his plan, question his design, and let me assure you, church, he is right here in our midst. Whether we see it or not. Let me assure you, God's power is moving intentionally through the course of human history at just the right pace, in just the right way, and it will be fully revealed at just the right time with the return of the King of kings and the Lord of lords, Jesus Christ, our Savior. Let me assure you, God's power cannot and will not ever be stopped. And for that... We celebrate the victory that he has offered each of us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we love you. God, we confess uh, so many times we miss the opportunity to trust you because of a thirst for our own power, for a thirst for our own control. Father, that so many times we, we see the people around us with a perspective that we shouldn't. God, that a lot of times we often see people as threats, as enemies, as people that we can resist or resent. And God, I just pray that we would repent of such a mindset. God, if there's any area of our lives where we we carry that sort of perspective, help us to see people as the neighbor that you have called us to love rather than the enemy that we seem so quickly and easily despise. And God, help us to to leave here today with confidence, knowing that whatever our lives may look like in this moment, no matter how unsettled, no matter how precarious it may feel, God, that nothing has changed your plan and your purpose, that you are with us, and that you're moving mightily in our midst. Let us celebrate and declare for all the world, once again, this good news of Jesus Christ. Once again, knowing that his power cannot and will not be stopped. And for that, God, we give you praise. We give you glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.